This section of the book develops the idea of hope through a series of poems, which focus entirely on the future hope of Israel and the nations. It is important to recognize that these poems not only promise that God will save the remnant, but that all the nations of the world will be brought together under God's kingdom. After the 70 years spent in Babylonian exile, God will bring His people back to the land He gave them through His covenant promise. As Micah 4 verse 10 declares, You shall be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. In the new Jerusalem, a new king from the line of David will come from the town of Bethlehem, and God will establish His kingdom and confront all evil. Chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 explain once again how Israel's unjust economic practices have brought judgment on the people. Here, Micah declares his most famous saying, He has told you, O human, what is good, and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel have not been doing, and because of it, they will come to ruin. Chapter 7 represents Israel as a person suffering after a great defeat, crying out to God to help him and to deliver him. This man cries this prayer because God's character is like no other. Chapter 7 verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? Micah ends his prophecy with these words, God delights in covenant love, so He will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. Well, Walk isn't that awesome? Uh, if you've been enjoying this Reflecting Hope series in Micah, why don't you shout it out in the comments section? Because I think it's been really cool. And especially, why don't we put some hand claps together for Malcolm Taylor last week, who absolutely smashed it dead in Micah chapter 5. And I'm coming now to the next chapter, Micah chapter 6, which, as you heard in this summary video, has one of the most famous verses in the entire Old Testament. Micah 6, 8, if you want to know what God wants from you in your life, this is it. What does the Lord require of you on the stream but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That's simple. But to understand the significance of this verse, we're going to have to take a look at the entire chapter 6. And when we do look at Micah chapter 6, what we see is we have a drama on our hands, specifically a courtroom drama, all right? This is like an epic episode of Suits going on right here in the courts of heaven that we've got. And on the topic of justice, we've had quite a week in South Africa concentrating on this very topic. You'll remember two weeks ago we said, you've got to read the Bible and you've got to read the news hand in hand. You've got to look at them together. Well, at the beginning of this week, we would have seen headlines like this that Jacob Zuma supporters were forming a human shield to stop the ex-president's arrest. At that time, a lot of us were questioning, do we have hope in the South African justice system? How are things going to pan out here? Well, as the week unfolded, we saw that he handed himself in. And now we have headlines like this. 
that there's, it's premature to assume a pardon for Jacob Zuma, even though there's violent backlashes ravaging KZN at the moment. And again, people ask the question, do we have hope in the justice system? Now, regardless of where we fall on that opinion, the truth is with human justice systems, it is possible for justice not to be served because of the people that are in charge there and that they're just people and they're faulty. But when it comes to God, we can have hope in His justice system because God is perfect. And that is both comforting for us because no one's going to get away with everything, but it's also terrifying for us because we're not going to get away with anything. And so as we turn ourselves to Micah chapter 6, we see this epic in the courtroom unfolding. And what we're going to see is four things, four headings. The accusation of the Lord, the expectation of the Lord, exoneration from the Lord, and dedication to the Lord. So we've got accusation, expectation, exoneration, and dedication. So the first thing we see in this passage in Micah 6 is the accusation of the Lord. In any courtroom, you might expect that God is going to be the judge, but not this time. God is actually the prosecuting attorney in Micah chapter 6. He's the plaintiff. He's bringing the case against Israel. In verse 2, he says, Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has this indictment. He has this case to bring against his people. So God is bringing a class action lawsuit against the whole nation of Israel. Yes, like, we don't want to be in this position right here. Because God's about to throw down facts. And we've got all the courtroom elements available here. The first sub point we've got is witnesses. The first thing we see there is the witnesses. Because if you're going to bring a case, you better bring your witnesses. And God brings some remarkable witnesses to the stand. He says, here you mountains the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. He brings these guys as witnesses. Why? Because hundreds of years ago, the mountains were present and were actually witnesses to God making a covenant with Israel up on Mount Sinai. We read that in various places. Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. See, when the people made their vows, much like at a wedding ceremony, when people observed that you signed that contract, there were also witnesses to this covenant agreement that Israel were to follow God. And these people were witnessed by the mountains and the enduring foundations of the earth. They checked it out. So now when God brings a court case against Israel, he calls them back as witnesses to say you were there and you testify against them. So we've got some heavy-duty witnesses. Can you imagine Mount Sinai waltzing into the courts of heaven? This is serious. Secondly, we've got evidence. Verses 9 to 16, what we see is God puts Israel under direct examination. God speaks specifically about the sins of the city. He has an issue specifically with how they have made their money, like we saw in the context video. So some verses on that. He says, the voice of the Lord cries to the city. This could be Josie. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness? Your rich men, they're full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So God whips out this evidence about how they've made this dishonest money. And he calls the heavens and the earth and the mountains to witness. 
And so he's got his court case on. He's coming in there like Harvey Specter or Mike Ross right there, bro. He's laying down the case. He's got the evidence. He's got witnesses. He's laying it down, closing argument, case closed, prosecuting, uh, prosecution rests. And we ask ourselves the question, where is the defense? They're just silent. You can read Micah 6, there's no defense. Just like when God has a case against us, there's no defense. And so what do you do in court when you've got no defense? You go for a plea bargain. So that's where this starts to go. A settlement agreement, when you know you're guilty and you say, let's negotiate about this. What's it gonna take to erase this guilt? That's what you see in the verse that says, with what then shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Often when we have a guilty conscience, we believe a religious act is gonna cover over that sin. I don't know if you've been in that place before when you've done something wrong and you're like, no, I'm just gonna double my giving this month. I'm just gonna like triple my Bible reading and I'm gonna make up for what I did wrong. But the problem is that doesn't suffice. It doesn't suffice because we see that the escalation starts to happen. The plea bargain gets higher. Shall I come in before him with burnt offerings? Even more extreme now. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? This is a very valuable thing to give to God. But that's not enough. So we've got a higher bid. Will the Lord be pleased with a thousands of of rams. That's not even correct grammar, but that's how it is in the Bible. With thousands of rams. I mean, who's got thousands of rams to give to God anyways? Mind you, that would probably be a really good plea bargain. Imagine that bri, man. So imagine all the lamb chops from thousands of rams. I can't believe the Lord turned this one down. But even that doesn't cut it. The mega bri isn't enough to cover the offenses of Israel. And so the plea bargain gets to the next extreme. What about thousands of rivers of oil, Lord? <laughs> this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is like getting to the point where you think you've done something wrong and you say, I'm gonna sell all my possessions and become a missionary. This is like, what can I do to pay for what I've done wrong? And then we get the most sobering offer on the table. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my own body for the sin of my soul. What if I was to inflict this pain on myself that my son would die? Would that be enough to pay for my wrongdoing? With what should I come before the Lord? And that word come before is like a technical term in Hebrew, which means stand in right relationship with. So because there's a chasm between us, what can I do to stand in right relationship with you? And unfortunately, no amount of pain or no possessions in the world can actually bridge that gap. There's no plea bargain high enough because the atonement for an offense is always related to who that offense is, is perpetuated against. So for instance, if you perpetuate an offense against society, you get removed from society because the offense is against society, so you get put in prison. But when you commit an offense of violence against the president, it's a higher level. So you get, because for treason, you either get excommunicated or murdered because the offense is always related to, the punishment's related to who that offense is against. 
So we've got to ask the question, what is the appropriate of the sentence that should be given against when we perpetuate crimes against the presidents of presidents, against the God of the universe? Surely the sentence is infinite if it's against an infinite God that we've committed an offense. So the atonement, the making up for what we've done wrong, we don't have cosmic powers at our, in our fingertips to be able to make up for what we've done wrong. And so no plea bargain is actually gonna work. So what's gonna cut it, Lord? How are we gonna get out of this? What does the Lord require of me? And that is the context for our famous verse of what the Lord requires of us. And we get to heading number two, the expectation of the Lord. So what does the Lord require? He's told you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, if you take that verse out of context and you stick it on a sunset background and you post it on Instagram or you share it on WhatsApp, it seems to be saying at surface value with no studying, don't, you don't need to be religious about anything. You don't need offerings or anything. Just try your best. Be merciful. Be just, you know, and try and walk humbly with your God. Everyone's got their own God and that's fine, but you just walk humbly with your God. That's what it seems to say at surface value. But I want to suggest that you can't take that interpretation if you understand the whole context of where Micah's at. If you take the Old Testament context, Micah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And all the Old Testament prophets reiterate there is a price to be paid for the sin that we commit. In fact, never mind our sin, even us and our best behavior is nowhere in front of God's eyes. Isaiah 46 says, when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. A failed vaslap in Afrikaans. Um, like what Dobby wore for an outfit before Harry set him free. Well, that, that's like us on our best day of our life. Our best behavior is still disgusting in front of a holy, pure God. And so we can't interpret this verse to say, just try your best. There's a price to be paid for us falling short, a cosmic price. It's just that we can't pay it. And then secondly, if you go to the New Testament context, this verse 8, which says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God corresponds to the two greatest commandments. Jesus always said, the two greatest commandments is love your Lord, the Lord your God, which corresponds to walk humbly with your God, and love your neighbor as yourself, which corresponds to do justice and love kindness. And Jesus always says and reiterates, this is required, these two commandments in the New Testament. But he doesn't bring it out in order for people to say, oh, shh, shh. Thank goodness for that, I can do that. He always whips it out to cut people to the heart. In Mark chapter 10 with the rich young ruler, in Luke chapter 10 with the lawyer, he whips out the two commandments because these guys thought they were really good in front of God's eyes. And he whipped these two out to say, no, you are nowhere near what God requires of you. And so it's hectic because um, we looked a little bit at this, this concept of loving God in the Institute. Shout out, by the way, in the comment section, if you were in this last institute, so you can represent in there. We were trying to help people be matured and equipped in the Bible. And we took a look at the Shema in Deuteronomy. And we took a look at this command to love our God. And we broke it down with the Hebrew word study. And we came out with this paraphrase. That when it says you shall love the Lord, it's actually saying that you should love the Lord your God 
with an authentic character, with all of your actions, with all of your thoughts, with all of your emotions, with all of your choices, with all of your physical abilities or restrictions, with every possibility and opportunity you get and with the highest capacity possible. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. And none of us come close to it. And yet it's a requirement of the Lord. So when you take a look at the context, there's a price to be paid for falling short and somebody's got to pay it, but we can't pay it. And it's also required in the New Testament. So what is the hope for us guilty? Because the more we look at this text, it's not just about Israel on trial, it's about you and me. And we stand guilty and what's our hope? And that brings us to heading number three, exoneration from the Lord. Exoneration is when by law you should be having a charge against you, but that is lifted. And I want to do this study on the verse 7. It's very important. It says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, in the context of this time, the firstborn carried the hopes of the family. They inherited everything of the land. And so what we see in the Old Testament is there was a, a curious law that said that the the firstborn was forfeit of every family because of the sins of the people. That all people are sinful and that at any time God could call in the debt of that by asking the firstborn sons to die. And that that's a legitimate thing in the law that God gave. So that's why the story that's famous about Abraham and Isaac plays out exactly as it did. God says to Abraham, take Isaac, your only son that you love, and go up on the mountain and offer him there as a sacrifice. And what we don't read is Abraham saying, what? And being perplexed? What we, because it wasn't something foreign to him. He got the fact that God might be calling in the debt. It was just an agonizing idea for him. So he went up there. Can you imagine the scene? Ready to murder his own son. And the voice of God cried out, stay your hand. Don't slay the lad. And he said, now I know that you love me. Because you did not withhold your son, your only son that you love from me. And the question that we have is, why did God not accept the payment on that day? It was because God was anticipating one day that he would march his son up the mountain, Mount Calvary, and that his own son would be slaughtered. The cosmic God who spoke everything into existence would go up there and hang on a cross thinking of the shortcomings of you on the stream and of me as well, having us in mind that God wasn't going to call in the debt of human death. He was going to call in the debt by making his own son pay. And that's why there's a bridge. That's how we come before the Lord. And now we can flip Genesis 21 around and we can pray to the Father. Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your only son that you love from us. It's a beautiful thing. And what we see there is the answer to the question. If you look at Micah 6, you've got to go back to Genesis and you've got to look forward at the cross. And now we can answer the question, how do we come before the Lord? How do we stand in right relationship with the cosmic God? It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we come to him, through that, we are exonerated in the courts of heaven. Not because it's like we just got off scot-free, but because 
when the sentence was being brought down by the judge, someone came and stepped in and said, I will take the electric chair for you. I'll take the lethal injection. It was Jesus Christ who took the punishment. And that is why we exonerated. We are lifted off every charge in heaven. So no matter what you've done this week, when you come to the blood of Jesus, it's paid for by a cosmic God. So don't you dare think this sin is too great for God because God is the cosmic God who's paid a cosmic price for you so that no one can say I'm unloved, I'm unrecognized, I mean nothing because Jesus died for you and he's the one that formed the mountains, that formed the foundations of the earth and he loves you and he paid the price for you. Now we know that he loves us because God did not withhold from us his only son, his son that he loves. So you've got infinite value and you're infinitely forgiven and you're exonerated of every charge as far as the east is from the west. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus for that. But not only is it that, but I just wanted to read this quote of Martin Lloyd-Jones. If our Christian faith is about the fact that we're saved by grace, everything after that is about grace too. He says, it is grace at the beginning and it is grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie in our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the one thing that helped us at the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Because the Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. It's grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God I am what I am, yet not I, but the grace of God which is with me. So grace is the hope for the guilty like you and me, and we exonerated. This is what Micah says in chapter 7 when he says, God will again have compassion on us. He will in the future tense for Micah, or he has in the past tense for us, tread our iniquities underfoot. He has cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And before this, Micah says, who is like our God? And that's what Micah means. Who is like our God who, in, who forgives us this? Jesus did perfectly what the Lord requires. And that leads us to point number four, dedication to the Lord. Have we been left off the hook in the courts of God only so that we could go back to acting exactly like we did before? By no means, says the Apostle Paul. Out of the abundance of the grace of how Jesus met the full requirements of the Lord, we actually get like a grace jet-fueled supernaturally changed heart that is actually capable of living out Micah 6.8. Not because we need to earn God's favor, but because we have earned God's favor by grace. We actually are capable of looking at this verse and applying it to our life. And so we're going to go into some applications right now. And I want you to participate in the chat. I want you to get lively in there because I'm about to throw down some applications that you can actually do this week, steps you can take. And I want you to say, this step is for me. This, or you have an answer to a question. I want you guys to get lively in there. So we're going to break down verse 8 with applications aplenty. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. We're gonna do applications for that. So firstly, do justice. This means doing right even when no one's looking. This means doing right even if it costs you. This is what um, Spurgeon meant when he said, if faith does not make an, a man honest, it's not an honest faith. So this is doing the right thing. So the first area I wanted to illuminate is doing justice at work. 
We've already emphasized this at other times, that when our boss isn't looking, our boss in heaven is looking at our working hours. Fair enough. I want to emphasize the other end today. For those of you that are employers, are you doing justice with caring for boundaries of your employees? Are you caring about their working hours and their boundaries? God's calling you to do justice there. Another justice issue at work is, are there any dealings in your work that are unethical or questionable? It's something you've got to reflect on. Because believe it or not, whether you are a low-ranking employee in a business or not, God is still holding you to account for participating in that cog. Is there anything unethical in the mix? Because God calls you to do justice. Secondly, God really cares about radical generosity. In fact, the word justice in Micah 6.8 is mishpat. And that means it's always connected to the widow and the orphan. God really wants us to look after the vulnerable people, vulnerable people in our society, the immigrant, the marginalized, people that have no means. Remember, Jesus did this. He came this to you whilst you were still an outsider. And so we need to think about bringing dignity and support to the vulnerable in our society. It's not always just about money, although we'll get to money, but it's also about how we talk. It's also about acts of kindness and service. And yes, money is also in the mix. So ask yourself this reflective question today. What role can I play in uplifting the vulnerable this week? Of course, I say this week, this applies to our whole life. But just what is my step this week? One small step of obedience. That's all God is asking you to right now. One small step of obedience leads to great things. Remember Jesus, he left the riches of heaven for you. But now we are reflectors of hope and we bring dignity to the vulnerable. Okay, so now moving on to mercy, loving mercy and kindness. God is not just calling us to do what is just. He's also calling us to do what is merciful. And not just calling us to do what is merciful, but to love what is merciful. Do you love mercy? When I say mercy, which relationship comes to your head? Ask yourself this question. Who is God laying on my heart that I need to show mercy towards? Is there someone that the Holy Spirit is just illuminating to you today, saying this is someone that I want you to show mercy towards? Who needs a follow-up conversation? I had this. I had people that I needed to do a follow-up conversation with and they passed away. And I regret it. I had an opportunity to show mercy. A follow-up conversations, we can't just assume it'll happen later. God might be calling you to that this week. And what about, what acts of kindness is God asking of me this week? This could be related to people in my heart, I sense as well, to animals. Doesn't really matter what God is laying on your heart. Just that what act of radical kindness is that God is calling you to this week? Because God requires it of us. And then how can I be a voice of kindness? Remember Simon spoke about the accent of heaven that is um, our speech is full of hope and kindness. God is calling us to take this on this week. How can my voice be a voice of kindness to others this week? Remembering Jesus was so kind towards us and now we are reflectors of hope, doing that for other people. And then thirdly, walk humbly with your God. The first thing I want to say under this is that we need to clothe ourselves with humility. It says in 1 Peter 5.5 5, that 
clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Humility is like the weather gauge where we can test how well or badly our relationship with God is really going. If you're going up in your eyes, then God is going down. But John the Baptist said, no, God, he must increase and I must decrease. And so we likewise need to be dressed with humility. Every day you're not dressed until you've got your humility on. So let me ask you this question to reflect on. Is there something blocking my complete surrender to God? Is there something blocking your complete surrender to God? It's a good question to mull over any time of your life. Think about the humility of Jesus. He left the powers of heaven in order to come as a servant. But guess what? Now we reflectors of heaven, clothed in humility. Secondly, we need to be dependent on God in prayer. Walking humbly with God entails depending upon God for all of our strength and all of our supplies and gratefully admitting we don't have what it takes. So ask yourself this question, where am I prone to rely on my own strength? God wants to come into that, lean hard upon God with that. Um, you know, I don't believe it's biblical to be standing in front of the mirror in the morning and say, you've got this until you feel encouraged. I believe it's about us getting down on our knees and looking to God and saying, God, you've got this. You've got this. And so as we, as we go into that space, another question you can ask yourself is how can I be constantly prayerful this week? Some of the city groups doing the prayer material, you guys are gonna be strong on this one. How can I be constantly prayerful? Hey, Wednesday night is an opportunity. I would say that is one thing to put in your diary to say that's how I can be prayerful, but that's just one blip on the week. How can I be prayerful throughout all of my day? Lean hard on God. Let your motto be, I can do nothing apart from God, just like Jesus said. Thirdly, lay your goals at his feet. If you're gonna walk humbly with God, you have gotta lay your goals down. Um, have you surrendered your goals to God? That's a, a question for you to ask because not all of the goals are God's goals. And even if they are godly goals, we need it God's strength and we need it for, to be for His glory. And so if we want to be people that are going to be advancing in God's kingdom, we've got to be willing to go down. You've got to sink yourself into the highest places. If you want to go high, you've got to go low. And that's what God is calling us to be humble with our goals there. It says in Proverbs 16, commit to the Lord whatever you do and He will establish your plans. So lay your goals at God's, goals at God's feet. And fourthly, be humble in this way that you move forward with God. It says, walk humbly with your God. So that involves exercise. It doesn't say be humble and sit still. It says be humble and walk with your God. This is why as a church we are committed to helping people take steps. We've got to move forward in our faith, people. It doesn't say we're not rolling around, we're not being discouraged and being stagnant. God says just get up and walk humbly with me. Be consistent. Don't be up and down. I forget my Bible for two weeks. I forget church for two weeks and then I pick it up and I go furiously. Be consistent. Walk humbly with my God. Keep being enriched by the mighty things of God. His word, his prayer, his church, all of these things. Keep humble, keep consistent moving forward with your God. So there's some things that I want you to reflect on. But as the band gets ready, I just wanted to pray a prayer of declaration over us. And so this prayer I'm gonna put up after Simon is, um, is done with the gathering. And this prayer is something that I want to pray over us as a church to live in obedience to this verse. 
I want you guys to receive this and agree with this. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to open up your hearts and be ready to speak to God through this. I'm going to pray this over us. I've written it out. Father, for all of us on the stream, we often busy ourselves in Joburg without the true heart of justice and mercy and humility that you've shown to us. We ask you, Lord, here in the middle of our year, please renew our hearts and our minds with you. We want to be tried by fire and we want to be purified. We pray that you would clean our hands, purify our hearts. Help us to be a people that extend mercy, that show love and walk humbly, that we would act in ways that are just and right in our city. Without your power and ability, we're not able. Without your spiritual discernment, we can't see what we need to see. Help us to hear your voice, to see things as you see them, to truly reflect the character of Jesus to our people in Joburg. Thank you for the promise that you said you will draw near to us when we draw near to you. May we tune out the many other voices and strive to tune into your voice. May we choose to see others as more important than ourselves. May we long to help to serve those who have suffered so greatly in this third wave and to be a voice for those that have been oppressed and those that have been silenced. May we choose to love mercy, to show kindness to all people. May we choose to walk in humility with you. Instead of looking out for our own selves, we look out for others. May your spirit breathe refreshment and renewal and purpose and power through us as a church today. We recognize that our great need is for you. We rely fully on your strength and help. Shine on us today as a church, Lord. Bless us with your peace and your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you can change even the hardest of our hearts. So we come together today yielded to you. We choose to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you all the days of our lives because you saved us on the cross and we live for you, King Jesus. Amen. Let's worship Him.